Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. On today's episode, I speak to a man that was there at the start of the British music explosion, the uprise of prog rock, and the roar and the snarl of British heavy metal. He was a friend of John Bonham's and Mark Boland's and a friend of anybody that likes music. He's a journalist and author. Of course, it's the one and only Chris Welsh. Welcome to the podcast. If you like us, leave a comment below. Subscribe to our YouTube channel now and make sure you never miss another upload. It's time to bring you yet another amazing episode. Chatting Tracks. With Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. Hi, it's Robbie from Chatting Tracks and welcome to today's episode. If you've not done it yet, Hit that cheeky like button so you can share and spread the love about the show and the podcast. I'd really appreciate it. It definitely helps me out. Sorry to ask you, but if you don't ask, you don't get. So, you know, give it a cheeky like. On today's episode, I've got the fantastic Chris Welsh. This guy's interviewed everybody from Lulu, the Shangri-Las, the Yardbirds, Led Zeppelin, Genesis, Iron Maiden, Queen, the Kinks. And honestly, I could do the list on and on and on. There isn't anybody this man's not spoken to. Chris Welsh is probably the music journalist, music journalist. He's been on tour with many bands, including Led Zeppelin, and he's written about 40 books. All the links will be available in the description so you can find out more about his books and his website. If you go on there, there's a fantastic picture with him and Keith Moon from The Who, for instance. We had a fantastic chat. I could have spoken to him for absolutely hours, and at the minute he's in the process of writing an autobiography. So let's hope that comes out soon, because that will be brilliant. Anyway, enough of me waffling. Enjoy the episode. Chatting tracks. Let's talk music. If we can sort of go back, if that's all right, to the start. Sure. Pretty much of your musical history. Was your parents into music? Did you live in a musical household or anything? Yes, my parents were interested in music. And uh, <clears throat> I grew up in Stratford in East London in a flat. And uh, I discovered later while we were in this crowded flat full of furniture and an old gramophone and lots of old instruments, violins and uh, a piano accordion. And my parents didn't want to play them anymore. It was much later I realised because they'd actually been bombed out, I think. They, they had a house full of stuff and they ended up in this tiny three-room flat and uh, uh, in Stratford, as I say. And it was all pretty grim. And it was actually during the war. I was born in 1941. So I do remember bits of the war, growing up in an air raid shelter, that sort of thing. And music was very important to my mum and dad. <clears throat> my dad played the piano a bit, very badly, but very loudly, I should say, yeah. <laughs> used to hammer on the piano. My mother played the violin, and my older brother, George, he played violin as well. But because of the war, there was a lot of stress, and somehow they stopped trying to play. But I uh, listened to music a lot, and that, we only had a radio, and uh, we listened to uh, BBC Radio, and the, the hit record of the day for me later was Teresa Brewer's Music, 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 which I don't know if you remember that. There's, put another nickel in the Nickelodeon. And I loved that song, and I used to whistle it. Uh, although I couldn't play the violin or any other instrument, I could whistle very well, very loudly. <laughs> and, uh, growing up in London in the 40s and 50s, uh, the streets were very quiet, and uh, you could whistle uh, while you work, making a big <laughs> echoing noise. Uh, I'd whistle all the hits, all the favourite hit songs. You know. Did you ever try to play an instrument at all? Did you ever pick one of those violins up and have a go, or was it just not for you? <laughs> No, I was very keen on the idea. In fact, when I went to my first school, which was St. James's Road School in Stratford, and uh, it was actually the infants' class, and the first day, they had a percussion band. 
and uh, the teachers are a bit, uh, I suppose, they were under pressure, and they didn't want to choose children to choose a particular instrument, so they, they threw them all on the floor in a heap in the hall, I remember this, and everybody had to scramble to break, uh, pick up an instrument. Of course, I wanted the snare drum. There's a big snare drum right in the middle. Dashed to that, and some bully pushed me out of the way and grabbed the snare drum. And I, I was only about four or five, I suppose. And I ended up with a triangle, which I hated. <laughs> <laughs> I've always taken a dislike to triangles ever since. So that was my first instrument, the triangle. Very uh, unsatisfying instrument, man. I think if you write your autobiography, that should be the title. I've always took a dislike to triangles. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very frustrating. Just one note, ping. I said, <laughs> yeah. rock triangles not really there, is it? Um, <laughs> play drums. Yeah. Sorry. Carry on. No, no, that's fine. Um, so you, <laughs> you dabbled in the triangle, and that's as far as you got. But was you sort of interested in writing at this time as well? Was writing always in the ether as a young boy? <laughs> Well, yes, writing was very important to me, right from the start. And reading, of course, my I was really uh, fortunate. My mother encouraged me to read, and I could read before I went to school, which is pretty good. I remember we used to go on the bus. They had trolley buses in Stratford with adverts inside, and uh, I'd read out the adverts aloud to all the passengers, showing off that I could read. And one of them was, uh, I drink Idris when I was dry, which was an advert for lemonade. I still remember that. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I could read and write very early on, and my mother used to read me lots of books. And also, my parents had this inherited this in this great pile of furniture in our three-room flat uh, was um, a sideboard. I opened it one day. I was sitting on the floor, and it was full of books. And I grabbed a book out and started reading it. And it turned out it was The Idiot by Dostoevsky. So I got as far as one or two chapters, and then gave up. But. Uh, <laughs> Just recently, I thought, I remembered this, and I uh, got The Idiot by Dostoevsky uh, in a hardback, uh, a new version, and I actually completed reading it, so after one of these years, I actually finished that book. Did you enjoy it? <laughs> I did, actually, yeah, it's astonishing, yeah. <laughs> but I used to love comedy and school books as well. One of the books I read, because we had all these old books my dad had, a lot of the pages were singed because they'd been rescued from bombed-out libraries when the books had got burnt and damaged. And I used to wonder why all the pages had brown edges. <laughs> it was explained why they were rescued from a fire. Oh, great. And uh, one of them was called Fifth Form at St. Dominic's, which is uh, all about public school, which was quite funny, really, because I went to you know, an ordinary working-class school while I was reading about all these posh lads at the public school. Uh, one of the things they did was to start their own newspaper, a school newspaper. And I thought, what a great idea. And uh, so I did that myself. But when I got to the primary school, uh, I started my own school newspaper. And I love the idea of newspapers and writing. So that's where I started. That's fantastic. And at this point, was sort of um, your sort of private music collection building, was you buying records at this time? Did you have money to buy records? Well, uh, back in, as I say, when I was still very young and living in Stratford, we did have a great big gramophone, and it was uh, an HMV wind-up clockwork gramophone with two little doors in the front. You open out, that was the speaker. And the spring wasn't very good. It used to groan and <laughs> it sounded like a, sounded like a sort of... Uh, a cross-channel ferry engine, you know, sort of grinding <laughs> away. And uh, my brother used to, uh, he was always teasing me, and he said, oh, look, see the, that, that little door there? If you open that door, we put a record on, 
He said, if you open the doors, you'll see a little band inside playing. There's the men in there. And of course, I opened the doors expecting to see this group playing inside. It was a big wind-up, literally a wind-up, a gramophone wind-up. <laughs> That's amazing. But, but the first record I played, and I really liked, actually, was uh, pre-war George Formby. Remember George uh, Formby? Uh, I do, yeah. People have a cult following for George Formby now. One of his biggest fans was, of course, George Harrison, I discovered later. My first record I really listened to was called, uh, it was an instrumental. It's called Swing It George, and uh, he was playing Tiger Rag. He wasn't singing, playing this incredible ukulele solo to Tiger Rag, a very fast jazz tune. And uh, I always thought later he was the Jimi Hendrix of the ukulele. <laughs> I love that. What I didn't realise about George, um, I watched a programme on him recently, was how filthy he was. Some of his lyrics were really filthy. They were sort of, you know, little bit of, was it little bit of Brighton Rock and all this sort of stuff? Oh, yeah. And Funny enough, I thought you meant George Harrison then. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, George Formby's lyrics were very filthy. That's true. Yeah. Walkers, I think they were. Yeah, for, for the times. It's very funny, yeah. Did he ever get banned? Did he get banned for that? Yeah. From radio, I think he was. Yeah, I think uh, they wouldn't play some of his more raucous numbers. Well, he's a great entertainer, really. Uh, very out of date now, of course, when you see the movies that he was in. But I just mm. love the sound of this jazz music. That's the first time I heard it with the trombone player playing Tiger Rag. And uh, so I started listening to jazz. And by the way, we moved from Stratford to Catford. We went up market <laughs> into a house. We actually had a house and uh, we took the gramophone with us. And my brother said, this is terrible, it's kind of a pint one day and it stopped working. So we actually got an electric turntable, plugged it into the wireless and we could play proper records. LPs and EPs were coming in. So, so yeah, and my brother was a big jazz fan. He loved Duke Haynes and Count Basie and uh, I listened to all of that. I mean, jazz is an interesting format to listen to, isn't it? Like, as you're saying, when you, you were younger, there was a lot of it around and there's less so now. Mm. And I think a lot of musicians were really influenced by jazz, even the Beatles to a degree. I think a lot of them were really influenced, but sort of subconsciously influenced by it with the time changes and the movement. It's just a shame there's not enough jazz around today, really. Yes, that's true. Yes, jazz was a big part of uh, life in the 50s and 60s. The young people, they were, I remember, we were all teenagers when I discovered jazz properly. And it was the cool music. The first mods, actually, were modern jazz fans. That's where the phrase came from. And the whole kind of... Uh, took the phrase mod well because the mods changed and when they, they discovered rhythm and blues and rock and roll music so but originally though you could be a, a modern jazz fan and you'd be listening to jerry mulligan or dave brubeck they were the mods yeah. it's amazing because when you look at a lot of like me looking back on documentaries now a lot of them are ex um, jazz clubs that these early bands started in like the beatles and the who and they're always you know we started in this club but we weren't allowed to play because we were rock <laughs> That's like, true. I think the cavern, yeah. yeah, the cavern was a jazz club, wasn't it, and all that sort of stuff. And it's yeah. amazing that they had to go. Yeah, yeah the Beatles were a bit hostile to jazz, weren't they? Uh, or trad jazz, because they thought they were being uh, not allowed to play in in the cavern, or they had to fight for space. I think to uh, supersede the trad bands that played there regularly. So John Lennon, in particular, I don't think he liked trad jazz. Oh, shall I tell you about my skiffle experience? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was uh, the next big thing, listening to the radio. People criticised the BBC a lot, saying they didn't encourage music. Actually, they did. They were very good playing um, the latest music. For teenagers, as they called it, uh, when you got <laughs> home from school, there was a programme that you could hear, and I turned it on immediately. I think it was on the light programme. 
I got back from school one day and I heard this incredible record. Uh, this Rock Island line by Lonnie Donegan. I never heard anything like it, this kind of a narrative blues song with a really exciting climax and uh, the whole thing just blew me away. And when I went to school the next day, everybody was talking about this extraordinary record they'd heard on the radio. And, uh, and of course, it, we discovered it was called Skiffle. And although Lonnie didn't invent Skiffle, he really discovered it. And he was the first revivalist, so he introduced thousands, maybe millions of uh, British uh, young kids to that kind of music. We discovered the blues and, uh, and all the other genres of music, thanks to Lonnie. I have to say it was Lonnie Dunn. And, uh, of course, when we discovered that you could play this music yourself, and uh, all you needed was a washboard, a tea chest bass, and some acoustic guitars. And within days, there were groups being formed, and, uh, and my mates formed a group. And we called ourselves the Capford Skiffle Kings. That was our name. <laughs> and uh, I was back to square one because uh, I didn't play the triangle this time, but I had to play the washboard, which was even, well, a bit better, a bit of an improvement on the triangle. And my mum gave me all these... Um, she still had a washboard, you see. That's what was used to dry, uh, dry the clothes with. Really. Scrub them, that's right. So we, uh, she gave me all this collection of thimbles and you could scrub the washboard and get a percussive sound. So it's like like a drum, really. What I love about um, Skiffle is, obviously, a lot of bands... Yeah, again, we're going back to the Beatles, sorry. They started out as a Skiffle band. And then, you know, many years later, you get someone like Mumford and Sons that come out and do the same thing, and they brand them as revolutionary. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I was know? surprised at that. It's all been done about 50 years ago. Yeah, shift it well, longer. <laughs> well, I didn't think it would work, you know, 60 years later. Then all of a sudden, everybody's all over it. and it's yeah. But you didn't get the revolution again of people picking up the same when, sort of instruments, did you? Sure, you how good it was, or what an impression it made. Because <laughs> it was, uh, in so many ways, Skiffle was very important, whether the music was brilliant or not. You know, it was... Um, encourage everybody to want to play an instrument and listen to music and my friends at school we couldn't afford a guitar and actually made them in woodwork class can you imagine oh. making guitars their own guitar and uh, this tea chest bass where you had a bit uh, literally you could get a tea chest in those days that's where they stored the tea <laughs> in your local shop <laughs> loose tea and you stuck a broom handle in it and tied a piece of rope or string uh into the box and you could hammer away on the string and change the note by moving the broom handle and I had to wow. carry this thing. That was another drawback <laughs> of being in a skiffle group. You had to carry all the gear. Walking down the street with a washboard and a tea chest place. I was much <laughs> embarrassed. <laughs> you should have done the harmonica. It would be a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I did get a harmonica, Lucy. <laughs> so you, is it right you, you got your first sort of writing job at 16 after seeing Louis Armstrong? Is that right? Well, yeah. How it worked out was, uh, well, by, by the time I went to secondary school, I was... Um, editing the school magazine and a classroom magazine. So I was doing a weekly and a yearly magazine, and I was known for writing, which was great. I got a prize for writing. Presented by the Field Marshal Montgomery. <laughs> wow. I mean, the school prize giving. <laughs> so I won the first for that, and uh, I loved writing. And when I uh, was about to leave school, you had to go to the um, uh, employment bureau and, uh, Careers advice, that's what it was. And, and I, they said, well, what do you want to do when you leave school? I didn't do particularly well. I only got English stuff, you know, the A-levels, O-levels. And I said, well, I want to be a reporter. I'd like to be a Fleet Street reporter. And they said, oh, they laughed. And they gave me a leaflet on what to do, well, the job I should go for. 
and it was mastic asphalt lathe operative. <laughs> How was that? And I realised it meant laying tarmac on the streets, <laughs> going around laying hot tar. So, well, thank you very much. <laughs> well, my dad was outraged, and he he actually uh, looks in the classified ads and found there was a job going for a Fleet Street editorial assistant, and uh, it was I was only sixteen, and I joined the Scotsman newspaper in Fleet Street. And that was an incredible job, really. I don't know whether I appreciated it fully at the time because I wanted to be a reporter, and I thought I was getting the tea and uh, <laughs> doing all the odd jobs in the office. But one day they said, uh, oh, you can... Because uh, they knew I was always sitting at the typewriter writing stuff. They said, oh, you can go and review this show. There's a show on in Kilburn, uh, going on, and it's Louis Armstrong's All Stars. I went, and I wrote a piece, and they published it, so... That's my first piece in a newspaper. Was it, being at that gig, was was that the sort of light bulb moment for you where you thought, like, music generally is the way forward for me, or were you just covering something? No, it was a light bulb moment. Yeah, I was very proud and pleased. I didn't get the byline, you know, it just appeared. The way I'm strong, the Gomot. And uh, I often used to wonder what the the Scottish readers up in Edinburgh or Glasgow would make of it. Now that 16-year-old office boy was pontificating a way about importance of Louis Armstrong <laughs> but uh, yeah it gave me a taste for it. and they're very encouraging uh, and I worked there for three years and Fleet Street then was just so exciting and I went to every aspect of it you'd go every day you'd go into all the you know, nation, the national offices pick up coffee and photographs and deliver stuff so I knew the inside of the Daily Express Daily Mail and the Mirror of the Times and they're all different and the Evening News had about seven editions a day and you'd have to go in and get the front page before anybody else rip it off the um, the hot press hot metal and uh, I remember once the evening news was so intense and it's on the top floor the print room and I went yeah. out there to get the front page the latest one which would be wet off the stone <laughs> and there were these two guys fighting they were rolling around on the floor fighting each other and it was the <laughs> sub-editor and one of the printers and you weren't allowed to touch the stone Union rules, and if you dare touch it, you'd be in trouble. And they're actually punching each other, rolling on the floor. <laughs> and I arrived. Yeah, it's very scary. But yeah, that's a great experience. I loved it, and it gave me an encouraging, uh, you know, to want to be a reporter. Yeah, it does sound like an amazing training ground. Um, I think nowadays a lot of people like. You had that experience. People don't have that anymore because people sit at home on the computer. They don't have that experience where. You're mingling with people. You're learning as you go. You make mistakes and you learn. There's, there seems to be no mistake room for error anymore. And I think that's that's a real shame that this stuff isn't around. Absolutely true. Yes, the newspaper industry then was king. You know, everybody read newspapers and there were dozens of them. And it was great training for me. And, of course, I experienced going to the House of Commons and uh, operating the switchboard. I remember the switchboard got into chaos one day. I was answering all the phone calls. And this voice was shouting at me. He said, I want to speak to the editor. And I was trying to plug him in. It's a PBX old-fashioned switchboard. And I said, yes, sir, what's your name? He said, Lord Boothby. He said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and That's I had to way. take coffee over the phone, uh, headphones on, and uh, type all the uh, sports reports. And one of them was golf from, uh, I think it was Southampton or somewhere down all the coast. And uh, the chief Scotsman golf correspondent was reading out his report to me, which I had to type. And he kept saying, birdie. Birdie. <laughs> what? I had to ask him about five or six times, what is he saying? And of course, Birdie is a 
a golfing expression, which I had no idea how to spell it or what he meant. <laughs> wasn't great. too happy with me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, was it from there you went to the Kentish Times? Yes, that right? that's right. Because uh, there were about six of us uh, uh, young uh, office assistants. Editorial assistants was our title, which meant running back across Fleet Street with a big jug of, a filthy jug of tea, which nobody had <laughs> cleaned, and you had to give it to all the reporters. So you got to know all the reporters. And wow. uh, all the uh, kids on my... Uh, at that time, we were all about 16, 17, and they all ended up in the press. One of my friends, Ted, actually, and uh, I'd met him years and years later. I said, how did you do get on? He said, oh, I was the sports editor of the Daily Mirror. So that was a good start. <laughs> and he just retired. So. <laughs> oh, fantastic. But uh, I started writing off for jobs on uh, local paper, local papers. The first one I had was from Scotland. It was in uh, Arbroath. Somewhere, uh, no, Oban out in the wilds. And I discovered it meant commuting from London to Scotland, which I didn't fancy. <laughs> they offered me a job, and uh, the Oban Times, but I turned it down. And then, then eventually, I got a job on the uh, Bexley Heat Observer, which was part of the Kentish Times series, and that was great. I worked there for three years, and uh, that's wonderful. That's a really good experience because you got used to interviewing people. I remember the. Shall I tell you uh, what it was like on? Please do. Yeah, sure. Well, the first day, uh, we had the lovely office in Bexley. In those days, the uh, local press had a big readership and covered lots of the whole of South East London and Kent. It's our, our group from uh, Woolwich to uh, Dal- to Dartford, I think, Orkington to uh, Eltham. And we covered everything that happened. So I, you get to know more about that area of the town and the people than anybody who actually lived like I knew the mayor of all the towns. I'd go to the fire station, the police, the hospitals, the mental of the hospital, courts, uh, coroner's courts. I used to cover inquests, and that was uh, pretty shocking, actually. Hmm. Going to because uh, nobody bothers to do that. I I would discover terrible things. Shall I tell you about inquest writing? <laughs> I'm interested brilliant. now. Yeah, that uh, <laughs> I discovered one thing you should never do is have the uh, a chip pan fryer in your home. Um, people used to make their own chips in boiling hot fat, and it caused right. endless fires. And you go to the fire station, uh, anything to report, yes, chip pan fire, house burnt down, housewife burnt, you know, and there'd be some dreadful thing. And so they banned it, I think, or discouraged it. Yeah, it was great fun being on a little paper. But the other interesting thing, aspect, apart from all that, going to the courts and the uh, um, the big crime wave in Bexley Heath was when uh, there was a bank robbery. And oh, right. It was right next door to our office. But all the staff <laughs> had chosen to go to the pub for lunch. <laughs> we were all sitting in the pub. I have to tell you, the reason we were in the pub was it had a great jukebox and one of the records that was playing on the jukebox, I'd never heard before, and it was Love Me Do by the Beatles. First time I ever heard it. And I thought, what an amazing record. We all loved it. And that That's was amazing. the start of Beatlemania. But at the same time, while we were all out of the office, our secretary came running and said, where are you? Where have you been? All the national newspapers are ringing up. They want a story. It's been a bank robbery next door. And the bank was next, literally next to our office. <laughs> Armed robbery. And we'd missed the whole thing. We were listening to the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a way to go. Funny enough, talking of the chip pan thing, I remember as a kid in the 80s, they still had the adverts for those. Where, um, yeah. Yeah, my mum yeah. had a chip pan. And they were dangerous, you know, full of boiling fat. 
If they tipped yeah. over they, and fell on the gas, then you, there's a whole lot of go up, set fires um, in the ceiling. And, and, uh, yeah, so, and of course, people tried to put them out of the water and sort of the damp cloth. And, and that was a, yeah. a regular occurrence. The other terrible thing about inquest was the roads are polling. There was a road mm. called the A2, which is still there. It's now a motorway. But it was a three-lane road, and in the middle was an overtaking lane that worked both ways. So that's a recipe for <laughs> total disaster. <laughs> at night in fog, you'd find another car coming straight towards you, combined speed of about 60 or 70 miles an hour, head-on I mean, it sounds like it was an amazing journey. And then when you was at the Kentish Jumps, you, you interviewed the Rolling Stones. Is that right as well? Yes. Well, the Rolling Stones were our local, our local band. They suddenly emerged. This is about 61, 62, that period. And uh, the whole R&B scene was taking off. And I loved R&B. I went out and bought Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley LPs and uh, listened to all the bands. And the Stones I went to see playing at Greenwich Town Hall. And, wow. of course, they had a lot of aggro with the audience, with the Teds or the Teddy Boys, as we used to still call them. Didn't like Mick Jagger, and they were shouting, Oi, get your ear cut. And Mick said, What? I look like you. <laughs> Which I thought was rather good. <laughs> but I did write about them. I did a big piece on them. But I didn't actually interview them for some reason. I don't know how I, I failed to interview Mick and Keith. Um, but, yeah, I did a piece on this great new band, local band. I think they're already out on the road, and it's difficult to get to them. From a local newspaper point of view. So, uh, and then uh, people said to me, well, you're writing about Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and Rolling Stones. You should get a job on a music paper. Uh, this friend told me this. And, uh, so, I thought, yeah, I've been here for three years. And how many more bring and buy sales can you write about? <laughs> or pub charity <laughs> nights. Great though they were. I mean, one thing about being on a local newspaper is you never had to buy a meal. Every night there would be a dinner. <laughs> He has <laughs> rugby club dinner, rotary club dinner, uh, and I'd cover like everything from the Conservative Party functions to the Communist Party. So I'd hear both sides of the story. Yeah, what, what I um what I found interesting was um obviously Beatlemania is obviously around. The Rolling Stones have just appeared as well, and you're then the first sort of wave of music journalists. Yeah. And it's like everybody's finding their way at the same time, which has now left such an impact now. You know, looking back to it then, was it one of those things where you realised you were breaking ground or was it just sort of another thing that was happening? Well, the extraordinary thing was in the wake of the Beatles and Stones' success, the whole British music scene took off and people had to write about that. And when I went to Melody Maker, I found, oh yes, I wrote to Melody Maker. Actually, I wrote to the enemy first. They didn't have a vacancy, but Melody Maker did. And... Uh, I realised that the staff on these music papers are all quite middle-aged and, uh, well, they seem old to us, but probably in their late uh, 30s, 40s and 50s. And they've been writing about the music scene since way back. On Melody Maker, we had staff who'd been there before the war. One of our reporters, Chris Hayes, he'd been writing about <laughs> British dance bands in the 1930s, which was fantastic, but not very suitable for writing about Georgie Fair and the Blue Flames or... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, the animals. So uh, they needed a, a new young reporter. And as I said, there was a vacancy. And uh, I went up to, uh, I was offered an interview, and I went up to Fleet Street. And the nice thing was that Melody Maker's office was in Fleet Street, right opposite the building where I used to work from uh, in the Scotsman. Um, 
163 Fleet Street. So I was literally crossing the road. And instead of getting the tea, I was now writing the, the headline stories, the main stories. <laughs> but they gave me a test, first of all, because uh, I sent them cuttings of my stuff about the Stones and Bo Diddley. And, oh, Gene Vincent was uh, lived in Welling as well, so I wrote about him. Didn't interview him, but I wrote about him. <laughs> so I had this kind of introduction uh, through press cuttings, and uh, the editor then was Jack Hartland and Ray Coleman, was the uh, news editor. And they said, right, uh, okay, yeah, we like what you've done, and you've written lots of letters. I used to write a mailbag, and they liked my letters, really, complaining about things. <laughs> <laughs> Angry of Catford. Yeah. <laughs> LP winner. I used to win LPs for writing letters. So they knew who I was, and they said, right, okay, well, we'll give you a test. Um, there's a drummer, famous drummer in London, playing with Dave Brubeck's name's Joe Morello, and nobody knows what to ask a drummer. Uh, we don't have any drummers on the star. I hear you play the drums, so could you interview Joe Morello? I said, yeah, great, okay. Who had to be one of my heroes, if brilliant drummer, of course. So they sent me off on a Sunday night to uh, a hotel in the West End, and I was a bit nervous, and Joe Morello was really charming and very helpful, gave me a good interview, and uh, I roasted up the next morning, delivered it to the paper, and they printed it the following Wednesday with a big byline. And the headline was a quote from Joe, and he said to me, you don't have to be an idiot to play the drums, you know. <laughs> of course, drummers do have a jazz drummers. They all thought they were sort of lunatics or crazy men. Yeah. You know, that's a public image. And Joe was a very studious drummer, of course, with his glasses. So that was the headline, and they printed it with a byline, and that got me the job. So thank you, Joe Morello. That's amazing. I mean, jazz, yet again, as well, is another incendiary world like rock and roll where you had you had people like Phil Seaman that was quite heavily into drugs at the time wasn't he and all that sort of stuff so it was the prerequisite to rock and roll absolutely yeah and uh, of course all the drummers were the, the best the British drummers were great there were loads of great drummers Phil Seaman and I used to go and see and interviewed later and uh, Ronnie Verrill with Ted Heath who later became famous in the Muppets I think he was playing with Buddy Rich remember that so we had some great drummers, and uh, of course they were technically brilliant, and they also taught a lot. And a lot of the young British uh, rock drummers had lessons; they all worked for lessons. And of course, a lot of the guys that were giving lessons were jazz drummers. So there was a sort of mutual respect between them. And mm. uh, although the uh, people like Mitch Mitchell, for example, worked for lessons, and uh, Jim Marshall, who was a singer and jazz drummer, and uh, before building all those noisy amplifiers. So, so, uh, yeah, most of the jam, uh, of course, later on when I got a job with Melody, um, I would love to write about all the drummers in the band. So they're all my heroes. Uh, Ringo, <laughs> I didn't interview, but I liked his drumming, actually. People were rather yeah. disparaging about Ringo, but he was a great drummer. And uh, they always took him at old session men played on the records. Well, maybe they did on one or two, but he was playing there for sure. Yeah. Um, Are you, I used to play drums in a band. Did you? And great. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. We used to have the same row with my friends, and really? it was like Ringo knew when not to play. That's the yeah. secret to Ringo's style. He knew when not to play. He didn't fill it up. Um, he didn't fill the song up with drum solos, and you know he only did one, and that was on Abbey Road. He, so <laughs> <laughs> you know he was <laughs> like, yeah, he did a great ending to Twist and Shout. Do you remember right at the, the last few bars of Twist and Shout? Ends yeah. a drum accent or two. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, 
But he was just, um, it's just different when you look at drummers, how different they all are and how unique they all are. I think you say you, you're a big fan of drummers. I think they must have been a huge fan of you because you noticed them because generally they're just at the back. <laughs> yes, people say that. But whenever I used to go to a gig, the first person I looked at was, oh, if they got a good drummer, it's going to be a good band because they make the band. <laughs> including the Shadows. They had great drummers, Tony Meehan, Brian Bennett, and, some, and the Hollies had Bobby Elliott and... Um, Fantastic drummers, and uh, I didn't concentrate on writing them. I was doing all the other stuff, pop stuff as well. But I was yeah. throwing in at the deep end with Rally to Make It because I, I then had to resign. I was indentured. Uh, that's another great thing about local journalism. It's like an apprenticeship. You're actually indentured. I had to go and see the editor in chief, and he was very upset that I was leaving because I'd been writing all this stuff for the paper. And, you know, after three years of training, they didn't want to lose me, but. Uh, I couldn't turn it. They, they realised this was their, an offer I couldn't turn down. It must have been an exciting time to be there, just with all this stuff going on, then music's now. Because were they sort of, in the press, was music sort of just the sort of sideline part? As people Were people actually interested until you got your Melody, Melody Makers and Emmy and stuff like that? Yes, I think the Nationals weren't covering so much. Well, obviously, with the Beatles becoming an international phenomenon, then they had to write about pop music in a much more detailed way. And get, the Nationals started to get their own reporters Don uh, I can't remember his name now Don on the Daily Mirror he was quite famous yeah uh, so yeah. the Nationals started uh, to uh, realise that they had to the Daily Mirror to be fair was always supportive of rock and roll they, they covered that a lot they they brought uh, Bill Haley to the country and sponsored his trip over here I think back in the yeah. 50s but no on the music press the well the, the thing to remember about the music press it was very competitive and I joined them the first day. It was a nightmare. Uh, the editor, Ray Coleman, he took no prisoners and uh, he'd been raised in the provincial press. And very tough editor. He had to be, really, to get the paper out. We had, uh, you think it's a weekly paper and the deadline was uh, Wednesday. And you came in on a Monday and you had to have all the news and stories written by at least by Wednesday. So yeah. <laughs> there's a bit of a tall order. <clears throat> My first day, I was used to life on the local paper being all very jolly and friendly sitting in the pub for lunch uh, Melody making my first day I had to do all the news stories and he said I want you to get John Lennon phone <laughs> him now well, where is he is it Heathrow Airport oh how do I get him he phoned the press office at Heathrow and put out a pager message John Lennon to report immediately to the uh, press office and, uh, and then the grumpy John Lennon what do you want how does it feel to be number one in the charts? Oh, great. Fantastic, man. And then he'd rush off and catch the plane to New York or whatever he was going. <laughs> so you had to do all this and you, you, the editor's breathing over your shoulder and you've got to retire the stories. Not long stories, but get yeah. those news stories out quick. And interviews. One of my first yeah. interviews was with the animals and uh, Ray wow. Coleman, who was very combative. He liked stirring up trouble. It's a day, It's like a... What would you call it? That's like tabloid journalism. That's it. It's got to be an angle <laughs> to the story. It can't just be my new album is. It's got to be I hate the bass player. You know that kind of yeah. Purely an descent and rouse. And uh, he said uh, the animals have just gone to the states after the Stones and the Beatles, and I hear they're a flop. <laughs> he said you've got to ring Eric Burden and ask him. Oh, oh no, it's Chas Chandler. So I rang Chaz, and uh, I'd met him before, actually. He's a nice guy, really helpful and funny. 
Hmm. She said, oh, I hear the animals have been a bit of a flop in America. Who told you that? Don't be soft, he said. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you got, I got an earful from chance, daring to suggest the animals were no, a disaster area in America, which wasn't true, actually. They were doing quite well. Because they had a number one. It's just that incendiary journalism, isn't it? Yeah. You know, throw a bomb in the band and then let's see what happens. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, you had to get a tabloid Sunstar headline, Animals Flop Shock Horror, you know, denied <laughs> by Chas Chandler. So this, this feud thing, it was like developing a feud, which the Nationals still do to this day. They always develop big feuds. One of the feuds I had to develop was Tom Jones and PJ Proby. Right. PJ versus TJ. <laughs> well, yeah. PJ would say, ah, Tom Jones, he can't sing. You know, I'm like Elvis, I can sing like Elvis. You get a quote, and then Tom Jones, well, I don't know, he's quite a good singer, but you know, <laughs> set them up. It's very funny. Is it, are we okay just to throw out some names of the speaker, people you spoke to? Is that okay? Just to give people yeah, an sure, idea? Yeah, sure, yeah. I was just going to say, uh, in that first week, uh, one of the people like bands I interviewed was, um, uh, oh, I'll show you. Well, the Beach Boys, of course. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, owner and user of Mint Mobile. And I am recording this message on my phone. I'm literally on my Mint phone. Why? Because fancy recording studios cost money. And if we spent money on things like that, we couldn't offer you screaming deals. Like if you sign up now for three months, you get three months free on every one of your plans, even unlimited. Visit mintmobile.com slash switch. Limited time, new customer offer. Activate within 45 days. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. Unlimited customers using more than 40 gigabytes per month will experience lower speeds. Video streams at 480p. See mintmobile.com for details. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. The first uh, week I was on the paper, I did the Beach Boys, the Animals. I've got cousins. Oh, the Shangri-Las. Do you remember the Shangri-Las? Remember yeah, what you wow. Saying? The Rocking Berries, Charlie Watts, Helmut Zacharias, the violin player, <laughs> uh, and the Yardbirds with Eric Clapton. So wow. That was uh, my first two weeks on the MM. That yeah. is crazy. And you spoke to Lou uh, Lou, Sandy Shaw, Nancy Sinatra, is that right? Paul Simon, PJ Proby, uh, yeah. the Animals, the Who, the Small Faces, the Hollies, the Bee Gees, the Moody Blues, Cream, like all these... Um, Oh, wow. I mean, what a list of people to speak to. It was extraordinary, yeah, because, um, yeah, because being a weekly and the whole music business was taking off like an explosion. And it was all geared to the, t- the chart, of course. If you had a hit, you had to be written about, and that helped a lot. Nothing wrong with being in the chart. Although, funnily enough, the Yardbirds, when I interviewed them in a coffee bar, it's when I met Eric for the first time. And he was sort of smiling at me and grinning because all the, the other guys were going crazy at the short- you know, uh, why aren't we in a pub uh, demanding kingship? <laughs> and, and, uh, and Eric was looking at me just to say, I'm not with these guys. And I realized that even then, this is right early on, he was thinking about leaving, which he did later, of course. Wow. Did, did they, um, were they sort of, when you went into these interviews, was there a sort of, I know you sort of had to do the journalist angle as well, like you were saying a bit with yeah. that thingy, but was it pretty much, 
you know, all the same? Was everyone pretty much down to earth? Was there anyone that was just too wild for you to speak to that you thought, oh, I don't want to get involved in this person or this band? Or Well, no, uh, not in the early days. Everybody wanted to be in the music press. It was a very prestigious thing, and their, publisher, their publicists and managers were desperate to get them in the paper, and they were fighting for coverage. So it was very important to be in the NME or Record Mirror or Disc or Music Echo. Uh, or no sounds then, that didn't exist, but or Melody Maker. And the big battle was between Melody Maker and the NME. Um, we wanted to get the stories first. And uh, as I say, you had to get a bit of an angle on whoever was in the chart. It would be a bit boring otherwise to read, so you wanted to make it readable. But the artists themselves, generally speaking, were all very helpful and cooperative. Sometimes they were a bit suspicious, or <laughs> they weren't sure quite how to take you. I remember some of the bands... Um, uh, the Rocking Berries and mm. uh, uh, Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders. Uh, some of the bands were a little suspicious. Usually the ones from Birmingham, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> bands from up north are a bit suspicious of uh, uh, us <laughs> southern jetties asking about their music. <laughs> but the, uh, I'll tell you who was really good. Um, the Moody Blues. They, they, mm. they were quite tough guys from Birmingham. And yeah. I got on really well with Denny Lane. He was terrific. And, uh, I think there was a guy called Clint Warwick, and because uh, they were long in tooth. Another thing about bands then was so often they were much older than they pretended to be. <laughs> lied about their age, <laughs> and you discovered like the bass player might, might be in his thirties, really, claimed to be twenty-two, <laughs> and they'd been working in factories. So they were quite down-to-earth guys. And, uh, but once you got past that little barrier, uh, get on really well. I was invited to a recording session. With the Moody Blues and uh, had go now, of course. Wow! Then, uh, yeah, I went to the uh, Moody Blues recording session, and I forget the name of the uh, producer now, a very famous producer. But uh, the band said, "Oh, you play the drums. How about you playing?" Uh, what was it? They wanted me to play. I think it was the tambourine or something. <laughs> keep time. Yeah, and I had to keep time with the band, and the producer was shouting, "Get him out of the studio! He's speeding up." <laughs> <laughs> I thought Table. he was going to say the triangle. <laughs> so that was my first attempt at recording in the studio with the Modi Blues. When you were um, uh, sort of talking to this amazing roster of artists, how did you go in as a journalist? Did you have set questions or were you sort of just going along and see how the conversation went or did you have a set 10 questions in your mind that you would always follow for each person? Mm. Well, I usually had the... Um, yeah, I'd usually get some guidance in the editor what kind of angle we'd want. But generally speaking, I, I seem to understand that, and I could do it myself. And I knew the, the bands that I was talking to. And being Melody Maker, which was more of a musician's paper, I, if I talked to them about their uh, techniques and their uh, ambitions and their attitude to music and their influences, that's what I'd talk to them about. And then you'd right. establish a rapport, like if you were speaking to Eric. He didn't say, what's it like having screaming girls chasing you? You'd ask him about his blues guitar influences, and they'd appreciate that. Of course, a lot of the papers didn't. You know. Some of them were real pop papers like Ray, Bunty, girls' papers. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. And they'd be on the front cover. Like the small faces were on the cover of the pinup magazines all the time. And they would be tending to ask questions like, what did you have for breakfast? And what do you think of the latest fashions? And... Uh, uh, well, yes, with all of that, so uh, gossip, really. So <laughs> if I was asking questions about asking the bass player what strings he had, 
He'd be delighted to tell me. For <laughs> <laughs> few people on the Bounty or Rave would be interested in that kind of technical stuff. <laughs> so, um, obviously, but, you're still there in the 70s and prog rock comes in mm-hmm. and you spoke to like Led Zeppelin Genesis um, and ELP and people like that. Prog rock, when it came in, from a journalist's point of view, was it accepted quite well or was it one of those things where people are like, that's just too much because it's too in-depth for the audience? It wasn't a three-minute single. Yeah. Were people enjoying that or was it too much for them at the time? Yes, there was that attitude, but remember that it was uh, coincided with the age of the album, the LP came. Up to then, LPs had been mainly collections of hits, mm. uh, chart-busting hit collections, which was great. Right. Like, even the Beatles did that, I think. Uh, but the Beatles had suddenly stopped, and they showed the way that you could I- improvise. You know, obviously, Strawberry Fields Forever and all those wonderful records they were making. And Cream were a big influence because they showed that rock musicians weren't four, car- four chord guitar merchants, or three chords, sorry. They only allowed <laughs> three chords. Uh, and that the drummers could play, and that there were all these young, brilliant musicians. We were talking about earlier, the drummers in particular, people like Mitch Mitch, Ginger Baker, who I got to know very well. Yeah. Uh, shall I tell you when I first went to see Crane rehearsing? Or uh, yes, please. Are we yeah. jumping back a bit? No, no, it's, no, it's great. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I've got to know Ginger because I thought he was a fantastic drummer, and I'd seen him play with Grand Bond, interviewed him for the MM, and one day he rang me up and said, "I'm leaving Grand Bond, and I'm forming a, like a band." I said, "Oh, right. What is it? Three piece, and we've got Eric on guitar and Jack on bass." Oh, wow, that's terrific. What are you going to call it? And so it's going to be called Cream. And uh, he said, do you want to come down and see us rehearsing? So uh, I ran a short story about this new group being formed, super group, I called them, because they were pretty incredible. And all Mm. the managers rang up the next day, or when the paper came out and said, what are you talking about? They're all signed to us. You know, (laughs) Eric Clapton's playing with John Mayle, uh, Ginger Baker's with Grand Bond, and Jack Bruce is with Manfred Mann. And all the managers were furious because... Nobody bothered to tell them that their star players were leaving. So, anyway, Robert Stigwood came on the scene, signed them up, and uh, he told me, "Don't worry about it." So they were threatening to sue, actually, wow. threatening me and uh, printing all these lies. And he said, "No, it's all true," and he issued a press release. And I went down to see them playing their first rehearsal in wow. the funny old dusty hall one. Uh, and they started playing. They didn't have much gear; just a uh, ginger had about three drums, I think, just a heap of an old drum kit in the corner and they were mm. making mistakes I remember Eric and uh, Jack saying you made a mistake you effed that up and arguing already that they'd only played three numbers <laughs> <laughs> it all began there and uh, so uh, 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 Robert Stigwood was looking very alarmed he just invested money in them he was managing the Bee Gees of course but he'd just taken on this band uh, he came over and whispered in my ear he said are they any good? And I thought, <laughs> I was quite uh, flattered, really, to be asked. And I, I thought years later, if I said, no, they're, they're a lot of rubbish, <laughs> I could have destroyed their career there and then. There wouldn't have been any cream. But I said, no, they're brilliant. Don't worry. No, they're really good. Great. And so that's really what I think started Progressive Rock that we were talking about because mm. of the interest in expanding. And um, the Albers, for example, were playing difficult, interesting arrangements for your love. And so it already started. And then there was the underground happened when everybody, everything would pursue it. LSD and nightclubs yeah. like Middle Earth, and uh, which I used to go to, and 
UFO, wow. UFO in Tottenham Court Road. You'd see all these marvellous, interesting, fascinating new groups. Pink Floyd, I saw, and uh, wow. uh, The Crazy World of Arthur Brown. Uh, let me think, who else was there growing up at that time? Uh, yeah, there are all these whole new bands coming on the scene. And the Jimi Hendrix experience, that's another experience. So combined with this new musicianship, the great players, the fantastic guitar players, yeah, allowed to play and make albums, and then that developed further. The next wave was progressive rock, and that led to Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and Genesis and King Crimson, mm. and, and that was really was the start. And I actually called it progressive rock because I'd like progressive jazz, and I thought this is what these guys want to do. You know, they want to use their fantastic technique and their new ideas and imagination. Oh, they're nice, of course. Forgot them. Yeah. So Brilliant. yeah, it's a very exciting time, and I encourage it as much as I could. Writing about all those bands, and the nice thing about writing about progressive rock, it wasn't ignored. Uh, the public uh, took to it immediately. It was. Tony and made for albums, the great yeah. classic uh, um, concept album, and the space to play what the hell you liked, take risks and not be told by the producer or the record company what you're supposed to be doing. No record mm. company would have told Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer what to play. Was it true that um, ELP he had to have, he had like a brass drum kit or something that weighed like two tons? And they had yeah, to- it wasn't brass. <laughs> no, it was. Uh, God, it was steel a or something, or chromium. I think it was that stainless steel. <laughs> stainless steel. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Because Carl was very uh, competitive. That's the thing about ALP. They were all great musicians. They'd all been in like Greg was in King Crimson, Keith Emerson was in uh, uh, The Nice, which was a terrific band. I used to go and see a lot and write about. And uh, Carl, of course, had been with originally with Chris Farlow and the Thunderbirds when he was sixteen. Wow. I need to learn from jazz drummers. He was a jazz, huge jazz fan. Yeah. And uh, then he was playing with the Atomic Rooster. And now I knew Atomic Rooster, of course, with Vincent Crane. And all together, once they all got together, they were all very competitive because they all wanted to experiment. So Keith would have uh, wanted to play a battery of keyboards, which <laughs> rode his, rode his night then. <laughs> not just a hammered organ anymore, which he'd been pushing around the stage on caster wheels, apparently, with the noise. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, he wanted to experiment with synthesizers and huge organ keyboard setups, mm. playing classical music, rock music, all mixed together, rock and roll and jazz. And then Greg, of course, was the middleman with a wonderful voice, playing fantastic mm. bass guitar and, and other guitar as well acoustic and lead guitar and that's what made the band sound extraordinary and then uh, Carl came along with his drum kit and in his face was this competition from these guys all writing and uh, creating this wonderful music and he wanted to show what a great drummer he was which he was of course great he is, yeah. studied percussion and then had this uh, it became very very much a show, show band as you know the Emerson Lake and Palmer pioneered Showmanship on stage. Yeah. <laughs> I saw at the Isle of Wight in 1970. The first show. Wow, you were there, were you? Yeah, I was in the front row. Yeah. Amazing. I filmed it on my uh, cine camera. Um, oh, that must have been for fortune. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't. It silent, of course, unfortunately. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> but I was sitting in the front row and they did this terrific set. I'd, I'd seen the rehearsal. I'd been to a rehearsal. I went to the first rehearsal and uh, Carl's told that he'd got to learn how to play. 
21st Century Schizoid Man by King Crimson. Because Greg was keen on playing that. And it's a very difficult piece to play, for, especially for a drummer. And uh, I saw him rehearsing it, and he was dripping in sweat. He said, oh, God, that was hard, that was tough. And as it turned out, they never played it, the band. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. On, on stage at the Isle of Wight, they came on at the right time, and the, and people say, oh, well, they, the public were, didn't, weren't into progressive rock. Actually, they were very much so. They went down an absolute storm. Yeah, bring uh, the material from their first album, and of course they they climax the show. They had two big brass cannons on either side that they bought from a hardware shop. No, it was an, an antique shop in uh, <laughs> Chelsea, Kings Road. The Rogers had stuffed them with flash powder, which you're not supposed to do, <laughs> and uh, put something inside it, and uh, and they they touched them off at the at the climax of the last number. I think it was Rondo. Uh, the real big climax, the last number, and uh, they touched them uh, at the little ports. They weren't supposed to be used as cannons at all. They were ornery. <laughs> and there was a tremendous bang, those showers of smoke and flame shooting out of the cannon. It wasn't firing a cannonball, mercifully. <laughs> Just an explosion. But unfortunately, an Italian photographer gate-crushed the stage and wanted close-up pictures, paparazzi, and he was standing right next to the cannon. And it blew him across the stage and landed on his backside. So that was the dramatic intro for ELP. And of course, the audience went berserk, all cheering. And uh, that's uh, from that, as Greg Lake said later, uh, one night they were unknown, next day they were world famous. So, a lot of truth on that. Can we um, just touch on if it's all right? Like, he's the drummer's drummer, isn't he? John Bonham. Can we talk about John Bonham for a second? John Barlam was a wonderful drummer, yeah, and different style. That's the nice thing about all the rock drummers in that period, because all the bands, they all played in their own style and sound, like Keith Moon was a great drummer. Mm. Nobody else played like Keith Moon, as he said himself. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the best Keith Moon drummer in the world, so entirely <laughs> true. Uh, Tony Williams, Miles Davis' drummer, I asked him once, well, who's his favourite drummer? He said, Keith Moon. Surprising, wow. was that? Because he played free. And John Barnum, uh, I first saw playing with... Uh, uh, Led Zeppelin, uh, then called, uh, it was still called the the New Yardbirds at the Marquee. And I'd heard all about, Jimmy Page had told me about this new band he was forming. He came into the office. Can you imagine that? They, they all came up to see me in the office to tell me about their new bands after Cream and Hendrix's experience. Now it was Led Zeppelin. And I said, <laughs> what's the name of the band? And he said, it's called Led Zeppelin. And I wrote it down in my notebook. He said, no, you spelled it wrong. It's L-E-D, not L-E-A-D. So Jimmy told me off immediately. And uh, and you know, I said, well, we're playing at the Marquee. So I went to see them at the Marquee. And uh, and I was standing next to uh, Mark, uh, from the drummer from Rare Bird. Young drummer do, yeah. from Rare Bird. Mark, God, Mark Ashton. And we watched John Bonham play for the first time. And he was so powerful and exciting and driving. And Mark said, ah. Oh, He's, he's unbelievable. He's, I'm giving up. And he said, he's, <laughs> at that point, he stopped playing the drums. <laughs> I can't play the drums after seeing John Bonham. It's interesting that Hendrix and Bonham probably made more musicians quit than start. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, one, one story that uh, John told me later when I got to know him, we became good friends, actually. He's a really nice guy. Fantastic drummer. And I went on tour with Zeppelin, mercifully because I'd given them some good reviews and Peter Grant was very pleased the way I wrote about the band. So uh, yeah. it wasn't planned, it just happened that way. And, uh, 
I got to know John. And, uh, he told me when he first started playing in Birmingham, in the Midlands, and he'd go into a studio and start hammering away really loud. And the engineer would say, you can't play like that in the studio or you'll destroy the microphones. There's no future in playing drums like that. <laughs> You're going the wrong way about it. This Young man. Off. Yeah. <laughs> he was banned from the studio, banned from lots of pubs, and uh, used to wreck other people's drum kits. He had a habit of going into a pub and seeing mm. a band play and say, oh, can I sit in, mate? And uh, <laughs> In a Birmingham accent, not quite an accent. <laughs> and they say reluctantly, oh, okay. And uh, he'd hammer away on the drum kit and leave a wreckage pile of uh, <laughs> the snare drum gone, head gone, bass drum on the floor, falling over. And uh, so he was banned from lots of pubs from playing. And he told me that years later, uh, when he had a load of gold albums and silver platinum albums, he went to see uh, this uh, drum teacher who told him there was no future in playing loud. And he, showed, he said, here you are, this is the future of playing loud. <laughs> <laughs> platinum Led Zeppelin album. Brilliant. So that was his revenge. But no, he was such a fantastic drummer. I was very fortunate to be on stage with Led Zeppelin and watch him play in clubs. That's amazing. So you've had the British invasion, then you had the prog rock of the 70s, and then in the 80s you joined Kerrang! So you had the new wave of British metal as well. What was it like to go from prog rock to metal? Was it an easy transition for you to get to? Or was it kind of you had to get used to the rock? kind of side of stuff that's heavier saying, than yes it was uh, difficult at first I did have to get used to it I thought I knew about uh, the, the first wave of uh, heavy metal because when I was on Melody Maker uh, bands like Iron Maiden were just coming in and then I left the MM mainly because of uh, well I'd been there for 15 or 16 years and it was wonderful but I thought I've got to do something else I can't just stay on Melody Maker for the rest of my life and be writing about Genesis when all the other kids were writing about something rap music or something grunge or something totally new you, know, you realize there's a point where maybe you should move on because as i say when i joined melody maker there were people who've been there since 1936 <laughs> <laughs> writing about british dance fans so i didn't really want to be in that situation and i was offered a job on a new paper called musicians only and uh, that's a nice thing to be uh, assistant editor and um, yeah. we had our own st- uh, office in charing cross road and uh, that was great fun. But sadly, there was a journalist strike and uh, the paper was off the streets for several weeks and months while the, uh, the unions and the, the empires uh, were sorting out a pay deal. And of course, when they came back, the circulation had vanished. Nobody, the paper had disappeared from the stands and they closed the paper. So I was then made redundant, which was no fun at all, uh, apart from getting a, a redundancy payment. And uh, I sat around thinking, what the hell am I going to do now? The melody maker didn't want me back, by the way. <laughs> which I thought they might, but they didn't. Because they were moving on into pastures new. By the way, I got a great exclusive story with the Rolling Stones. Uh, okay. I, I became freelance for a while, freelancing. But yeah. Because I knew the Stones, and uh, they invited me to America to see them preparing for a tour. And uh, it was in Boston. And uh, I went to their... The secret venue where they were re- rehearsing, and uh, with Bill and uh, Keith and Nick, Charlie, and uh, no, who else was there? Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ronnie, Ronnie Wood, Ronnie, Ronnie yeah, see, so, yeah. and I had exclusive access to the Stones 
before they did a big show in New York. And uh, they invited me upstairs and they, they played some numbers for me. I was sitting on the floor listening to the Rolling Stones. Wow. An audience of one. I thought, oh, what a fantastic story. This is great. And I rang the melody maker when I got back said, I've got this great scoop. And I had a melody maker. Nobody else was uh, allowed to see him rehearsing. Mm. And the editor, who was sure remained nameless, said, oh, no, we want somebody from our office to do it. We don't want you. But I thought, oh, thank you. 15 years of work on melody maker. That was their attitude. They were resentful because uh, I'd got it and one of their staff hadn't. <laughs> so I offered it to Recordbearer, their rival, and they, they ran it. But that's the perils Brilliant. of being a freelancer. And after that, uh, yeah, uh, while I was on Musicians Only, I'd, I'd written about Iron Maiden, who I really liked. I thought a great young British hard rock band. And as it turned out, I got to know them well, Steve, the later, their later drummer. Nico McBrain, and it turned out, would you believe, you know, progressive rock by this time, we're talking about late 70s, early 80s, it was a death sentence. I think that's why the <laughs> MM didn't want me anymore. They, they associated me with Genesis, and yes, right. the LP, and they were persona non grata, and uh, you just didn't write about them anymore. You know, it's like punk rock or else. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I... Uh, wrote about Iron Maiden and uh, I went to see them they're really nice guys and would you believe it guess what music they liked Jethro Tull <laughs> awesome you get more prog rock than that oh the other <laughs> funny thing was I interviewed uh, I did try and write about punk rock actually I did Generation X I liked them I thought they were a great band and I liked Billy Billy Idol and interviewed him yeah. and I thought they were a great band very exciting and uh yeah, what was that leading to? Oh, yes, that's right. There was a punk rock magazine called Sniffing Glue. I don't know if you remember that. I've heard of it, yeah. Oh, yeah Sniffing Glue. So, uh, and he was running the, the first kind of uh, fancy uh, for mm. punk. So I, as a fellow journalist, uh, I had to write about Sex Pistols, who I went to see and reviewed as well, live. And uh, I interviewed Mark Pay of, uh, of Sniffing Glue, the ultimate voice of punk rock. I was doing a picture on him. And I said, well, kind of, what bands did you like? And she said, oh, I love Emerson, Lake and Palmer. So, <laughs> <laughs> the secret was revealed. All these punk <laughs> people were all secret frog rock bands. Amazing. What a turn up for the books. I'm, I'm barred from writing about uh, music <laughs> and comfort on the NN. And, and that, all these guys are actually progressive rock fans, secretly. <laughs> oh, that's the other funny thing. Okay. John Lloyd, Johnny Rotten, mm. became a great friend with Keith Emerson. So that's the ultimate irony. <laughs> <laughs> Over the years, um, should we say 60-year music career of journalism, is there an artist that came out that you really thought was going to do well but actually just didn't and just faded into obscurity, like an album or a band that you thought, this is brilliant and this is the future? That's a very good question, actually. Yeah, there were musicians I did try and encourage and didn't always make it. Uh, most of them did, I have to say. <laughs> like Genesis, who I went to see when they first played in the, a little... Oh, I saw Genesis playing upstairs at Ronnie Scott's Club. You know, oh. the small room upstairs and yeah, uh, yeah. promotional gig. And uh, the first time I'd seen them, I was with Peter Franson, actually. Peter <laughs> and I we were having a drink in La Chasse, and we said, let's go down to Ronnie's and see who's playing upstairs. Upstairs at Ronnie's was a, a venue. And there was this strange band playing there, the folks standing with a bass drum. 
playing, standing up and singing with a bass drum, and uh, we discovered they were Genesis. They were called Genesis. That's the first time we saw them. They were very mm. successful. So <laughs> I can't say that they were failures. <laughs> Most of the people I saw did ten, turn out to be huge successes. Uh, Austin at, uh, like Mark Bolan, of course. Uh, oh, I love Mark. We haven't talked about Mark, but anyway, but just another time. Uh, I did like Peter Banks, the guitar player was, uh, was yes. I thought he was a great guitar player. He was on the first Yes album, two Yes albums. And uh, unfortunately, he was let go by the band. Often uh, musicians tend to make a fatal error. Drummers, lead guitar players, they try and walk before. Uh, they want to be stars too soon. Yeah, They want to be individuals. They want to be have the limelight on them too much, you know, and that offends the two guys in the background are actually writing the songs, <laughs> and they're really the stars of the band, and they run the band. So it's I've I've known this happen to sort of other friends' bands who aren't famous at all, but let this happen. The worst thing a drummer can do, by the way, is to put lights in your bass drum, or have a drum <laughs> riser built by your dad. So me, you can do that, you get fired by the lead guitar player. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Peter, who's a great guitar player, I thought on those first two albums and had it. Unique sound, and uh, one of his fans was actually Pete Townsend. Townsend thought he was a good guitar player, but he, he tried too hard. He was throwing the guitar up in the end, catching it. And uh, I remember Chris and and John of uh, Yes calling me one day, saying, "Well, you're friends with Peter. Can you turn him just a short <laughs> solo? It's going on for fifteen minutes, you know? <laughs> And this is like a band that's still making its way; it hasn't had any hits yet, and you can't really overdo it that much. So Peter made a mistake. Tried to be the star too soon and uh, was let go. And uh, he did form his own band Flash later, which was very good, I thought. Uh, but there was a downward spiral after that. So he never really was fully appreciated. I thought he was a great guitar player and he should have done. And I did try and help him as much as I could. So, yeah, that's the story. One, one musician I thought should have done really well, but didn't quite make it. Can we um, just briefly talk about Mark now we've brought him up? Like, I just think he was probably one of the best. I still feel underrated artists. Like People just sort of say, you know, Big Curly Air, Lamb Voice. But he wrote some of the most amazing songs in the 70s, I think. Especially Hot Love. Yes, that's right. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, Mark, I always thought, has a tremendous potential. Like, such a funny guy. And uh, I first met him in the, off in the corridor at Melody Maker Office. He'd come up to, uh, he was a very great self-publicist. I was saying like drummers shouldn't put lights in their bass drums or try and promote themselves too much. But uh, Mark knew all about self-promotion and he was so charming and funny and articulate and uh, but totally ignored mostly by the record companies and the music business, people quite disparaging about it. I remember publicists for other, other artists saying, oh, Mark Bowen, soppy kid, you know. He's like, they didn't take him seriously at all. There's curly hair cheeky kid and uh, <laughs> who thought he was a star and he was a star yeah. he was born to be a star really, wasn't he? and I first saw him uh, running down the corridor in the in the IPC office in Fleet Street when he was going, heading for Disc which was her sister paper and he wanted to see Penny Valentine who's a, a wonderful journalist and uh, a great uh, pop writer and he was going to, for an interview and I just sort of made a joke about him I said oh you look like Pansy Potter, the strong man's daughter. I don't know if you remember the character in uh, Bandy no. and Beano. It's a little while ago. He looked like a cartoon character. I remember. 
with a big hair, a bit frizzy. <laughs> so he turned around and looked at me and they laughed. And uh, after that, we became friends. <laughs> came to see me instead of Penny. <laughs> Amazing. But the first time I actually uh, was aware of him, I reviewed his single. He did, and I'm just looking up at my, my book of a thousand words here. It was his uh, first, so, oh, it's The Wizard. That's right, I'd forgotten it. Wow. 1965, I heard this single called The Wizard, which is on Decker, when Mark was doing solo singles. And, uh, I, I liked it. I thought it was really interesting and great record. So, uh, and then after that, he joined John's Children, which was mm-hmm. uh, Simon Napier Bell's uh, band, rival to The Who, or Charge of Bear, I think. <laughs> and they were on track records. Notorious, terrible, state, uh, violent stage shows. And I interviewed John's Children in our local pub, the Red Lion, which is where I did all my interviews in the Red Lion, and, Mark, <laughs> and, and uh, with John's children. We all sat at the table. Mark didn't drink then, by the way. Right. Didn't like beer. Right. Nor did Mick Jagger. He hated drinking. So. Hmm. He said, I can't imagine myself drinking a pint of anything, let alone beer, he said to me. <laughs> but Mark was, uh, I mean, remember I told you that Eric Clapton always looked slightly out of place in the Yardbirds? He had a little, I'm not with them, atmosphere vibe. And the same with Mark sitting with John's children. They're all very up and le- loud, boisterous. And Mark was sitting there quietly and looking a bit glum and fed up. And I discovered why. It was because they weren't playing his songs. He'd written on his songs. <laughs> he, he wanted to be the songwriter. Even then, he knew exactly what he wanted to do. He wasn't going to stay with John's children. Although they got a record deal and were making records in, in the papers. And they'd done that uh, Desdemona. Which I yeah. think Mark actually wrote. Actually, yes, he did write that. So, uh, but he wanted more songs uh, being covered by the group. Uh, he wasn't happy with John's children. And then next time I saw him, he came back to the pub and turned up with a, a manager guy, and he said, uh, "Oh, I've left John's children. I'm forming my own group." I said, "Hey, what's it going to be called? Is it a big group? And you got drums and things?" He said, "No, it's just two of us. Two of you, yeah." He said, it's going to be the biggest band in the world. I said, well, how is that? He said, it's called Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> <laughs> so although it's a small group, it's big on ambition. <laughs> and you've got the gear together, dates and things. They're going to play at the, uh, what's that place in Covent Garden? Yes. Middle Earth, places like that. And uh, he says, yeah, we've got all the gear together. We've been to Woolworths. We brought it all in Woolworths. <laughs> Well, what did what did you buy a Woolworths? He said, uh, oh, well, a tin, a toy drum kit, and uh, a Bon Tempe electric p- keyboard, and that's the cheapest organ you can buy. And well, it's sounded terrible, but it's about <laughs> twenty quid in Woolworths, I think. So, and bongos. I went to see the rehearsing at um, at Mark's. Lived in a tiny little flat in Notting Hill Gate on the top floor, and uh, he had this uh, one room flat with his girlfriend June, and uh, I went up there. For dinner with uh, June and Mark, and he, had, he said, Do you want to see my studio? I said, Yeah, yeah. And he pulled the, a curtain aside, and it was a little cubicle, and it's called Toadstool Studio. And that's where he wrote all his songs and played acoustic guitar, and it was like the size of a telephone box. And he had his <laughs> own studio. He said, Do you want to play the bongos? I said, Yeah, okay. So I played the bongos on Deborah Westerman, not on the final record, but I played with uh, Mark when we did, he was rehearsing. Deborah. So I could have beat the record. That's good enough for me. <laughs> Skin bongos, yeah. Deborah. <laughs> Music journalism. Um, 
it was obviously quite a thing in the in the 60s, 70s and 80s, and it was quite a sort of target for people to go to to get an opinion. Do you think it's as important today as it was back in the day? Probably not, no. I think it's all down to the internet, isn't it? People have access to everything, music, and, and all bands have their own websites now, and you could you find out when Sanford was uh, born or where they were married or what was their first album. It's all available, vast masses of information, which we used to glean from if we were lucky, a printed EMI press release, a typewritten one page. What's Bo Diddley's life? <laughs> <laughs> you get a, a handout sent around by a motorcycle messenger some days later. So it's all very slow and uh, primitive. Uh, and, and I was on the music page for weekly's. But we did it, you know. There was a big team, vast team of people producing that wicket. Now you can all sit at home like we're doing now, and uh, I could go on my other computer and look up Wikipedia or Spotify and find out stuff. I was looking up my first favourite records. So they're all on Spotify. So, <laughs> so instead of waiting for a motorbike messenger to deliver uh, the, the latest Beatles album and, uh, and play it once, twice, and then wait for a press release and then make long phone calls. No tape recorder, by the way. It didn't have a tape recorder. Right. Everything was scribbly notes, ink. You were covered in ink, basically, waiting for a motorbike messenger. But now, of course, yeah, it's totally changed. And I, I'm not sure. I mean, there are still some great music publications. Mojo, I think, is still happening. Mm. I've written to Mojo. And uh, Record Collector is a great magazine. That's a real specialist magazine. I've written for them, too. Uh, there were specialist magazines like Rhythm, the drummer's magazine, certainly no longer. And was the one I did like was, um, let me see. well, there's a few that I've been writing for and gone. They've all disappeared. Yeah, Q's gone as well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It shows you how soon you think, yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I can't even remember the names of the magazines I used to write for every week. <laughs> Because there's so many. Yeah. Um, you've written many wonderful books. Um, your John Bonham book's great as well, and your Viv Stanshaw book is great as well. Um, if people want to get those books and find out more about you, where's the best place to go? Uh, to, well, I do have that. Uh, I think I'm on Wikipedia, actually, and I have got my own website. It's called Chris Welch Online. Uh, that's uh, .com. So you can find them there. And uh, let me see. Well, there's the publishers, of course, like the Keith Emerson book. It has a tell you who they're published by rocket 88 is the publisher um but she sounds like the very first rock and roll record doesn't it rocket 88 does yeah uh, so that was published uh, last november around about my birthday actually that was the last book i did and that was exhausting work very tiring very intense very emotional I'll put a link to your website in the description so people can find it. Chris, it's been amazing talking to you today. I could do it for hours, to be honest with you. (laughs) I better stop talking, Bob. Chatting tracks. Let's talk music. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.